Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit northmonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. Let's get our Bibles, go to Romans. We're going to start in chapter 10. Um, We had been studying Romans and then we took the summer off and now let's come back around and finish Romans. If Jesus doesn't come back, if He does, then, you know, we'll be fine with that, right? But uh, if not, let's learn from what God wants from His Word, the chapter of Romans chapter 10, uh, verses 1 through 13 this morning. You know, we have this, uh, it seems like unlimited ability to complicate things. Here's a sign over a low doorway in a church in England. The height of this door is somewhat less than the average height of the human person. If therefore you are up to average or above in height, be especially careful how you approach and pass through, lest an accident ensue. Someone put a sticky note with a welcome summary. Bend or bump. We have the ability to take something simple and overly complicated. If you don't believe that's true, then you've never tried to put together a piece of Ikea furniture. Uh, You would think it would be relatively simple to do, but the instructions are anything but. And that's why Romans 10 becomes so refreshing for me, because in the chapters 1 through 9, we've dealt with some fairly heavy stuff. We've dealt with, you know, the justice of God. We've dealt with the the fallenness of man and the darkness of man. We've dealt with the sovereignty of God and and what it means to be chosen and elect and all of those kinds of words come to bear. But now in chapter 10, we come back around to the simple truth. What exactly is it that God requires of me in order for me to have my sins forgiven, to know that my eternity is secure and that I don't have to worry and wonder about that, that heaven is my home? And he says essentially through this that you receive it by faith. That's the message. So let's let's begin in verse 1. I'm reading from the New English Translation, which by the way is a great translation if you've not read this one. New English Translation, essentially a group of uh, DTS professors got together and they uh, translated the Bible and gave us a, a lot of nuances and information to that. So if you, if you want to look at it, you know, people ask me all the time, do I need to know Greek or, or, or Hebrew or languages to be able to study the Bible? And the answer is no, because so many great, brilliant minds have already done all that for you. And if you really want to get the nuances of translations of various words, then just look at it in several different translations and you'll be able to pick that up. And there are, there are all kinds of online Bible trans, translations that are out there. The U version is really good from Life Church, and so pick that up. And so uh, let's turn on our, our apps or whatever, and let's look at Romans 10, verse 1. It says, Brothers and sisters, and so he's talking to the Jewish people, uh, or he's talking to the, the, the church uh, about the Jewish people. Brothers and sisters, that's the church. My heart's desire and prayer to God on behalf of my fellow Israelites is for their salvation. And so he's repeating something he essentially started in chapter 9 in verses 1 through 3. Only there he said, I want so desperately for my fellow Jews to come to faith in Christ that I would be willing to give up my own salvation if that's what it took in order for the nation of Israel to to come to faith in Christ and to be saved. And so what we see here is in chapters 9, 10, and 11 of the book of Romans, there's this discussion on the place of the Jews, you see, because they were the chosen people, and now in the new covenant, they're on the outside looking in. And the question then becomes, how did that happen? And while you and I don't have a whole lot of interest exactly in, you know, God's dealing with the Jews and how that affects our daily life, um, there are things that we learn as a consequence of this, not only of the nature of God, 
but also what it takes to have a relationship with God. And so he begins to delve into that as he begins to, to work through that because in the process of the fact that uh, their obstinacy uh, becomes our teacher. And so he's explaining why the Jewish uh, brothers and children of the promise are now on the outside looking in. And we see God in, in, in Romans 9, uh, their problem was that they were relying upon their privilege, you know, because to be chosen, they said, we're children of Abraham, that makes us the chosen nation. And so the idea was that I'm special before God because of my birthright. Even though John the Baptist had very clearly said, you know, you don't say that I'm Abraham's offspring. He said, we can, uh, God can make uh, children of Abraham out of these rocks. And we came to realize that we are not in a unique relationship with God by virtue of our birthright, but it's by virtue of our rebirthright. When we are born again into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, we then become a part of the chosen. So in effect, when you choose Christ, you become chosen. That's how that word is used in the Hebrew understanding. And that now in chapter 10, he speaks about effort. The Jews mistakenly thought that they could work their way to heaven. And so let's see what he says. The first thing I see here is he says, passion isn't enough. He says in verse 2, For I, I can testify that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not in line with the truth. They have a passion for God, but it's a passion without truth. And, and what he's saying essentially is it's not enough to be zealous. I know a lot of people who would say, you know, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe it fervently. Kind of like this uh, story I heard years ago about this lecturer in the 19th century, and he came out of some lecture conference hall, and he was in a hurry to get to his next meeting, so he jumped into one of those London horse-drawn carriages, and he yelled at the driver, drive fast! And man, they take off running through the streets of London, you know, the sparks flying from the horse's hooves, and the guy starts to bounce around inside the, the carriage, and he looks out, and he realizes they're going in the opposite direction, and so he yells to the driver, driver, do you know where you're going? And the driver says, no, sir, but I'm going as fast as I can. Man, that is this generation. They don't know where they're going, but they're trying to get there as fast as they can. And what we have are lots of people with zeal without skill. It's not enough to be zealous. It does matter that you believe. You know, people say, I don't care what you believe as long as you believe it passionately. You know, I, I came across recently this, in this idiotic woke culture that we sometimes have to deal with, that they are now praising Islamic terrorists for their courage and heroism. Here's a quote from the article. They genuinely believed in what they were doing, so much so that they were willing to give their lives. Yeah, they were zealous, but they were also dangerous. And that's the point. Zeal without truth is a dangerous thing. Heinrich Himmler and Adolf Hitler were very zealous about what they were doing. And they believed strongly that what they were doing was the right thing. Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols were convinced of the justice of their cause when they put a truck filled with explosives next to the Alfred P. Murray Federal Building in downtown Oklahoma City and set it off, killing 168 innocent people, including children. They were very zealous. And the Jews were very zealous. But it was a zeal without, without truth, in accordance with truth. Because here's what Jesus said. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. And no man comes to the Father except through me. And as zealous as the Jews were, 
They rejected that statement and they rejected Jesus. Now, if Jesus is in fact the way, the truth, and the life, and you teach anything other than Jesus, then you're not helping people, you're hurting people because you're pulling them away from the way, you're pulling them away from the truth, and you're pulling them away from the life. And so it doesn't matter how passionate you are about your religion, passion isn't enough. That's what he starts with. The second thing he says is stop lying to yourself. Verse 3, for ignoring the righteousness that comes from God. And by the way, the righteousness of God is always descending. Do you feel that? The righteousness that comes from God. God's righteousness is always condescending. It's not a righteousness that's achieved. It's a righteousness that's received. That, that God in Christ demonstrated His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That the love of God poured out on the cross is a gift of God. It's coming from God. It's emitted from God. But the righteousness that people try to achieve through their own legalistic machinations is always a righteousness coming uh, upward. Uh, and, said, and so he says, and seeking instead to establish, you see that, to put in place, that word is histamine, to put in place their own righteousness. They did not submit themselves to God's righteousness. Do you feel the sad irony of that? I mean, here's a group of people who are desperately seeking the righteousness of God. They desperately want to be right with God. It's not like they're playing games. It's not like they're messing around. They want to know God. They want to be right with God. But they have rejected the righteousness of God and have put in its place their own righteousness that they're trying to manufacture. And in the process of that, consequently, their passion to please Him keeps them from pleasing Him. It's a bitter irony. And this describes exactly how Paul uh, lived most of his life. He described it exactly that way. Philippians chapter 3, verse 4. He says, although I myself might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. See, Paul, man, Paul was a Jew of Jews. He says, circumcise the eighth day, exactly as you're supposed to be, of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. So he's from the southern tribes. A Hebrew of Hebrews, he said, as to the law of Pharisee. I mean, Paul had studied in the greatest schools. He studied under Gamaliel. His great learning was uh, known throughout that part of the world. Um, he would be like a, a person today that we would respect in academic circles everywhere he went. Uh, as to a Jew, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee. He was on the council as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. There's a guy that made straight A's and went out and tried to shut down everybody that didn't believe as he believed as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. In other words, if you could achieve righteousness through effort, then Paul was all over it. But he couldn't do that. Look at that next line in Philippians 3. But whatever things were gained to me, those things that I achieved, all of those accolades, all of those trophies, all of those, you know, summa cum laude stuff, he said, all of that I have counted loss. For the sake of Christ. And that word loss is usually used in comparison contrast. It's a business idea. It's the terms of loss versus gain. It's assets and liabilities. He said, if you look at my balance sheet, you would think that my balance sheet was filled with assets from all of the efforts that I did throughout my life and all the great things I accomplished. But in reality, when you look at the real balance sheet of righteousness, it's a loss. It's, it's in the red. It's a big fat zero. 
And these guys were exactly where Paul was, only they couldn't take an honest assessment of themselves. They couldn't look in the mirror and really come to terms with what Paul fully understood about himself. They just kept trying to achieve it through works, and they had to lie to themselves to believe it was working. Because that's what ultimately happens when you fall into the trap of legalism. You always have to lie to yourself. And here are the two great lies the legalist tells himself. First of all, legalists whittle down parts of the law that are too hard to keep. Look at chapter 10, verse 3 of Romans. They did not submit themselves to God's righteousness. You see that? Circle the word God there as opposed to their righteousness. Why didn't they submit to God's righteousness? Well, because it's too hard. It's unattainable. I mean, if righteousness is achieved, then you have to settle for a righteousness that's achievable, and that won't ever be God's righteousness. And so what you do is you tend to whittle down what the standard really is, and instead you focus on those things that you feel like you're doing a pretty good job with. Here's a great example of this from the New Testament, Matthew 23, 23. What sorrow awaits you teachers, this is Jesus speaking, you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees. He says, hypocrites, this is Jesus, man. He's pulling no punches. By the way, don't make Jesus into Mr. Rogers, okay? I mean, he was a compassionate guy, but he made people mad enough to kill him. You got that? So he's looking eyeball to eyeball with these religious leaders who are not just Pharisees. They are the, uh, essentially the Congress of their nation. And he says, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites. For you're careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of law, justice, mercy, and faith. You know, they, they go into their herb gardens and, oh, my rosemary's doing really good. I better cut off a tenth of that and take it down to the temple and tithe my, my rosemary or my oregano. Let's be sure we pick off a tenth of those leaves of oregano before we, you know, haul it to the... It's ridiculous. He says, you do all of that and you want to make sure you do all those little bitty things, but you, you ignore justice and mercy and faith. Those weightier parts of the law. But that's what legalists do. They whittle it down. The second thing they always do is they ratchet up the parts of the law they feel they can keep. And in Paul's day, that was all about the Sabbath, you know. The the commandment says, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. And so there you go. And, And so the idea that they started to ask was, well, how do you keep the Sabbath holy? And so they asked the question, what is work? And that's really the wrong question because the Sabbath was about rest. And so the question should have been, what is rest? But they didn't ask that. You know, man wasn't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. It was a gift from God for man that we should rest on the seventh day, right? But they asked the question, what is work? And so they started answering it. Well, if you walk too far, that's work. If you cook on the Sabbath, that's work. If you light a candle, yeah, that could be work. What about if somebody gets hurt? And so it sort of becomes really crazy what you couldn't do on the Sabbath. You had to cook everything the day before. You could only walk a certain distance. Anything beyond that was considered work. You couldn't light a candle. If a man was injured, you could do the bare minimum to keep him alive, but you couldn't heal him until Sunday if he lasted that long. So you better not have a heart attack on Saturday because, you know, we'll, we'll put you in bed and hope for the best until we can get a heart doctor here on Sunday because that would be work. And so this creates all these ridiculous scenarios. Matthew 12 describes one. And there was a man whose hand was withered. This is Matthew 12, 10. 
And they questioned Jesus, asking, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? They wanted to prove that Jesus was a lawbreaker. Listen, Jesus was never a lawbreaker. He was a rule breaker. He never violated God's laws, but he would break man's rules. And men were the ones that had created these crazy rules. And so he, when did he tend to heal? Well, he tended to heal on the Sabbath. Why? Because he wanted to make a point. And uh, he said to them, what man is there among you who has a sheep and he falls into a pit on the Sabbath? Will he not take hold of it and lift it out? I mean, you know, you got sheep, you shepherds, got a sheep falls in a pit. Aren't you going to get him out? How much more valuable than is a man than his sheep? So then is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? I love it. You know, he pointed out the absurdity of their position. You'd help a sheep, but not a man. He said to the the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and it was restored to normal like the other. But that's the kind of ridiculous situations you get into when you think you can earn your salvation through your zealous efforts. You wind up lying to yourself. Let's go back to Romans 10 now. Now verse 4, because this puts it into context. For Christ is the end of the law. You see that? He's the end of the law with the result that there is righteousness for everyone who believes. That word end is telos. It's where we get the word telescope. Telos means the end. Scope means to see. So a telescope helps you to see the end, right? But in this case, it meant fulfillment, the completion the fulfillment of the law. And so Christ is the end of the law. He didn't end the law. Don't misread that. He is the end of the law. Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. Jesus didn't abolish the law. He brought it to its rightful conclusion. He fulfilled it. Because here's what the law says. The law says the wages of sin is death. And the law says that if you're guilty of some, you're guilty of all. And so everyone who sins in any way comes under the judgment of God and they're under a death sentence. That's the law. So Jesus did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He fulfilled the law by going to the cross and taking the full punishment of the law upon Himself. Theologians call this substitutionary atonement. The one who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. He became your substitute on the cross. So He died for our sins. I'll never forget years ago, I was a youth guy and I had these horrible kids, uh, three brothers. Uh, they were just rowdy and I'd go get them and bring them to church and I'd put them in the back of my car and drive them around. And one time we were going to the lake to do a deal and I'm trying to witness to these three little hellions and uh, they're in the back seat and they're shifty kids, you know, because they're always in trouble. They're like 13, 14 and 15 and they're just shifty. And I'm going, boys, do y'all know Jesus died for your sins? And one of them goes, nuh-uh, man. I don't even know that dude. I had nothing to do with it. (laughs) I said, well, you may not have known him, but he knew you. And he died for you. That's what it means to fulfill the law. The only way to fulfill the law is to die. Everything else is a lie. Look at verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness by the law. The one who does these things will, look and circle this word, live by them. That means if you're going to achieve righteousness through your own efforts, then you have to obey every single aspect of the law. You can't pare it down. You can't raise up one part over the other. It's all or nothing. And anything else is a lie, man. And so you're lying to yourself. Stop lying to yourself. Man, I talk to people all the time, you know, and I, you ask, 
hey man, do you know for certain that if you were to die right now, you'd spend eternity with God in heaven? And you know what they'll say? I'm doing the best I can. I really hope so. I'm trying to. I hope the man upstairs understands. You're lying to yourself. Um, quit looking for some new truth. That's the third thing, Romans 10, 6. But the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven. That is to bring Christ down. He's quoting Deuteronomy 30, verses 12 through 14. And here's what I think this means. Stop searching for some secret solution. The answer isn't somewhere else. The answer isn't in the clouds, you know. Uh, don't say in your heart, who will ascend to heaven? And the answer isn't in the pit. Look at verse 7. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. John MacArthur helped with this. He said, the righteousness of faith does not require some mystical, esoteric, and impossible journey through the universe to find Christ. No matter what form it takes, righteousness which is based on law denies Christ's incarnation and denies His resurrection. Consequently, works righteousness is also a denial of the gracious salvation Christ has provided by His own blood. In other words, stop trying to figure this thing out. Stop complicating it. Stop thinking that if you could just get somewhere else or have some mystical experience with God, that if I could just eat the right magic mushrooms or take the right trip or, or get in the right, you know, transcendental moment. The answer's right beside you. That's what he says. Verse 8. What does it say? The Word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. You see, here's the thing. If the answer was somewhere else and I have to go find it, then I'm always a bit off the hook because I, I can't really deal with the answer because I haven't really found it yet. But what Paul is saying is the answer is right beside you and you've got to deal with it right now. The word of truth is spoken into your life right now. The word of truth is calling you to a relationship with Christ right now in this place. And the Holy Spirit confirming that in your heart brings you under conviction. And when we come under conviction, we always try to want to dodge that and try to make it something else. And I need to go somewhere. I need to do something. I need to have some experience. No, here it is. It's right beside you, the truth, right here in this place. The Word is near you. The Spirit speaking to you. Simply respond. See how simple it is? Verse 9. Because you confess, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and that word confess is homologeo. Logos means the word, and homos means one. If you speak one word, he's not so much calling for a belief in God as he is a commitment to God. It's more of a formal declaration of allegiance. When you come to Christ, you aren't just nodding your head in agreement. Yeah, I think He exists. You know, the Bible says the demons believe in God and shudder. You're pledging your undying allegiance to the Lordship of Christ over your life forever. And notice the second part. It's a two-step thing. If you confess with your mouth, homologeo, Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. It's a commitment. And when you do that, notice what it says. You will be what? Saved. Saved from what? Well, saved from your sin. Saved from the consequences of your sin. Saved from justice. Saved from the judgment of God over your life. 
You're, in fact, you're, you're brought out of the darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son, and you become adopted into His family. That's what it means to be saved. Saved from the poverty of the life that is lived through the consequences of debauchery and evil and sin. And put on a footing to where you know that heaven is in front of you. And notice there's no doubt. You don't have to worry and wonder, am I good enough? Have I done enough? Verse 10, for with the heart one believes and thus has righteousness, and with the mouth one confesses and thus has salvation. For the Scripture says, whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. Here we are, back to his argument. What about the Jews? What about the Jews? There's no distinction between the Jew and Greek when it comes to grace and salvation. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. And here it is, verse 13. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever, you know who is included in whoever? You. That means it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter if you cheated on your husband. It doesn't matter if you, if you hurt somebody intentionally. It doesn't, I, those things matter, but they don't matter under grace. They're forgiven, they're restored, they're healed. It doesn't matter that you've lied doesn't matter that you've lusted. It does, there's no place that you go that's beyond the reach of grace. And you, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, will be saved. Why? Because of you? No, because of Him. I was listening to Alistair Begg. I love Alistair Begg. Don't you, y'all need to get turned on to Alistair Begg. Just his, he's got that British dialect, that Scottish dialect, which one thing makes him easy to listen to. I just wish I'd have been born in Scotland or Australia, but I was born in Texas. You know what they call our dialect? A twang. That, even that doesn't sound good. Who wants a twang? Alistair Begg was talking about this, and he said, if you were to die tonight, and you getting entry into heaven, what would you say? If you answer that, and if I answer it in the first person, we've immediately gone wrong. Because I, because I believe, because I have faith, because I'm continuing. Loved ones, Beg said, the only proper answer is in the third person. Because he, because he. Think about the thief on the cross, Alistair Beg said. What an amazing, he said, I can't wait to find that fellow one day to ask him, how did that shake out for you? I mean, you were cussing the guy out with your friend. You've never been in a Bible study. You never got baptized. You didn't know a thing about church membership. And you made it. You made it. How'd you make it? That's the answer the angel must have said. What are you doing here? The thief's like, well, I don't know. The angel, what do you mean you don't know? Well, because I don't know. Well, you know, the angel is speechless. Excuse me while I go get my supervisor. They go get the supervisor. So with just a few questions for you. First of all, are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? Guy says, never heard of it in my whole life. And let's just go to the doctrine of Scripture. The guy's just staring. And eventually says, on what basis are you here? And the thief said, that man on the middle cross said I could come. That's the only answer. You see, one day we're all going to be standing before that angel and he's going to say to you, why should I let you into my kingdom? There's only one right answer. 
that guy on the middle cross, he said I could come. It's not on the basis of what I've done. It's not on the basis of how good I've been. It's all about what he did and what he says. And he says, enter into my rest, my beloved. I will in no wise cast you out. That's grace. And it's simple. And so the simple question for us is, and the only question for us, have you received it? Don't you love how uncomplicated it is? It's just a simple truth. We are saved by grace through faith. It is the gift of God, not the result of works that no man should boast. And you don't have to go somewhere else looking for it. You don't earn it through your performance. It is received, not achieved. And so the only question before you, have you ever come to a point in your life where you've fully given your life over to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and you've said, and you don't have to have all the right answers, God, best I know how, I give all that I understand about me to all that I understand about you. Take this mess that's called my life and change me forever. Please forgive me of my sins and thank you for giving me eternity. That's what grace is. And it's that simple. Would you like to do that right now? And the Word of God is near you right now. The Holy Spirit speaking that truth into your life. Today's the day. Are you ready? Well, let's pray together. And as we pray, I just want to invite you to make that decision just in the best way you can. God, I commit my life to you. I pledge my allegiance to you. You've got my life. It's yours to do with what you please. I believe in Jesus and I believe that He's raised from the dead and I fully commit myself to you. Father, we thank You that salvation comes in no other name. We thank You for the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ poured out on the cross. We thank You that You so love this world that You gave Your only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And I thank You for the simplicity of Romans 10 to remind us of that. Simple truth. And now we don't have to wonder Father, there are people that need to just speak those words to you. God, I give you my life. I commit my life to you, to your Lordship. Do you need to say that? Why don't you just say that right where you are right now? Father, I commit myself to you. Change me. We thank you that salvation is through no other name. In Jesus' name, amen. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.